Welcome to the Next in Q podcast, a not so safe space for all kinds of news, views, and dialogue. Brought to you by Quilliam International. Welcome to Next in Q. I am your host, David Tope, and I'm here with Andrew Copson, who is the Chief Executive of Humanists UK. Uh, in this co- podcast, we're going to be exploring the nature of secularism and humanism. And in particular, we're going to be asking how far humanists can accommodate religious conservatives, moral conservatives. And specifically, we'll be discussing the manner in which a pluralist and secular society can be made to work for people who are not social liberals and who want to live their lives according to socially conservative values. So it's the difficult question, mm. really, for secularists. Um we're also going to be asking the converse question, which is, what should secularists and social liberals expect from religious moral conservatives? So let's start with a definition of terms. Liberalism, secularism, humanism. They're all labels which are used quite carelessly, sometimes interchangeably. Uh, if we're going to use these terms, it's pretty important that we know what they mean. So let's start with, let's start with secularism. What okay. is secularism, Andrew? Well, secularism is a is a term that has had many definitions, and I think that one of the reasons is that it describes um, a political settlement, and political settlements are always put in place in particular countries at particular times by particular people, and so there are really lots of secularisms around the world throughout uh, uh, time and, and throughout uh, space at the moment. In the recent book on secularism that I did with AUP, that must be the earliest ever you've had a book plug in the book. No, that's great. It's about 18 months old. Oh, it's 18 months old, yes. It it is available from Amazon. Oh, it is. All all reputable booksellers. And directly from from you guys, I guess. Uh, No, not at all. Only from OUP. It's it's in the very short introduction. You know, there's little OUP books version to to secularism. Um, Well, in that book, I chose to give the definition that I've continued actually to think is pretty fine, um, by a French scholar of secularism, Barbaro, um, who says that secularism consists of three parts. Firstly, there's the separation of state institutions from religious institutions and no domination of one set of institutions by the other. That's the first part. Secondly, a secular state is one that attempts to secure freedom of religion and belief, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience for the people within its borders. Not absolute freedom, of course. There are limits um, to everyone's freedom uh, in the interest of the rights of others, and perhaps we'll come on to discuss that under the heading of liberalism. But that's the second part of the definition of secularism, as far as Barbara is concerned. And the third part of his definition, which, as I say, I think is a good one, is that a secular state is one that treats people equally regardless of their religion or belief. So it actually makes efforts to achieve equal treatment um, in a disinterested way um, of citizens with different worldviews. So the separation of institutions, the attempt to maximise freedom of conscience and belief, and the attempt to treat people equally, I'd say that those were the three aspects of secularism. So what you've just described is essentially a definition of liberalism as well. Is there a, I mean, how do we distinguish the idea of secularism from liberalism? Or are they essentially different ways of saying the same thing? I think that that you're right. Um, I think that if liberalism, if we're going to define liberalism now as being, you know, um, the, the, the social and political settlement that um, allows people to be free 
to act in accordance uh, with their own wishes up to the limits of the rights of others so that other people's freedom can be also maintained in that way, then secularism is just liberalism as applied to religion. Right. So it's the, it's the, it's the liberal states attitude, um, the paradigm liberal states attitude towards conscience, religion and belief in its citizens and its institutions. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much right. Now, that's where you start to then think about um, whether Barbara's definition is that good, um, because there are obviously uh, regimes in the world today and in the past that have called themselves secular that have mm-hmm. not been liberal. Um, the Soviet Union is a good... Soviet Union, Cuba, um, revolutionary France, you know, in the de-Christianisation period, um, Ataturk's but uh, Republic. The, but I mean, all, one of the questions is, are these really secular states? So that's because what I would say. Yeah, right, because right. there's their state... I mean, certainly in the Soviet Union, you saw effectively the nationalisation of, exactly, of religion. Exactly, exactly. And there's no difference between um, the establishment of materialistic atheism and the establishment of um, any religion, as far as I'm concerned. So the Soviet Union is, of, I would say, definitely not a secular state. Um, but it, it's just a reminder, really, to say that... Um, I agree with you, um, and I definitely think that secularism is liberalism when applied to uh, religious affairs, um, but that we must be aware while we're using that definition that many people um, who use the word secularism to describe situations like Ataturk's Turkey or, or the Soviet Union will uh, demur from that uh, definition. I say, as you've said just then, um, that that's because those uh, states aren't really implementing secularism, but nonetheless, that's out there in the language. I mean, here's a, an interesting question I pondered for a while. If you are an atheist, is there a firm basis to distinguish a religious belief from another sort of philosophical belief that doesn't incorporate God? It's entirely possible for people to have a worldview which is structured by a sense of morals and ethics yep. and the rightness or wrongness of particular uh, conduct. Uh, if you're an atheist and you don't believe in God, mm. why should you treat those beliefs which uh, yeah, don't include a belief in God as any different from a... a well, I think that's belief? right. I mean, I think everybody has a worldview, um, a frame through which they see the universe and their place in it or human beings' place in it. Um, everyone has beliefs and everyone has values. Um, you know, whether they avow them you know, explicitly or whether they don't, whether they just live them out implicitly. Um, and if they avow them explicitly, it's the job of the philosopher to understand them. And if they don't, it's often the job of the psychologist to try and right. understand, yeah. understand them. But... I think you're right. I think that uh, for, for me, there's never um, been any fundamental difference between how I viewed a person's religion um, and another person's fundamental uh, framework for understanding the universe, which might not be religious. And you might object equally to a state that enforced a particular view oh, of absolutely. morality, whether or not it was Completely, completely. I mean, I think I, I would certainly um, not want to live in China you know, um, or the Soviet Union for that matter, or, you know, immediate, um, immediate post-revolutionary uh, France uh, in its sort of um, de-Christianizing, you know, aggressively persecuting of Christians uh, days either. No, I think that's right. I think that um, for the state to adopt um, a any set of policies that begins to uh, inculcate uh, or privilege a certain comprehensive worldview um, in its citizens or in its institutions, um, is uh, not the recipe for social harmony. Now, there's another important distinction to make here, and it's a conflation which is often made 
And that's the distinction between atheism and secularism. Mm-hmm. They're not the same thing, are they, Andrew? No, not at all. Um, I mean, atheism is just the belief, simple really, um, that there are no gods or goddesses. Um, or that there uh, probably aren't, um, or that we should live as if there aren't. Um, it means no- nothing more or less than that. Um, secularism, as we've rehearsed, is a more complicated approach um, in plural societies to the, the role of uh, religion um, and the role of the state in matters of conscience. So these are two different things. And in fact, some people do, of course, link the two together. And they do that, though, not by saying the ideas are intrinsic or overlapping, but often by pointing to the fact that many secularists, personally atheistic, um, or quite hostile to religion in one form or another. So for example, I mean, yes, the French revolutionary ultras didn't like uh, Catholicism and hated all religion. Yes, Jefferson wasn't very keen on, you know, theism of any uh, sort. Ataturk was, you know, not a devout Muslim, let's put it that way. Um, Nehru, when he was presiding over the secularization of the Indian constitution, you know, said that all religions were a source of horror to him. So there have been many atheistic um, secularists. But some of the strongest secularist traditions in the West have also been religious. You know, would there have been an American secularism in the Constitution if it hadn't been for the Baptists and the other religious denominations that saw secularism as a way of protecting religious minorities and creating a space for people to follow their own conscience? Yeah, I mean, it's a really important part of the American uh, foundational myth. Absolutely. And it goes back to the Protestant Reformation where essentially Catholicism and uh, you know, royal autocracy sort of fall into the same basket and individualism and Protestantism sort of fall into the opposing camp. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. And the same is true in a a, a different sort of way in India and Turkey when they get around to implementing secularism politically as well. I mean, it's interesting, actually, how many, uh, if we're going to go back to the the sort of early days of India, how many uh, religious sects um, opposed the creation of Pakistan as a Muslim state mm. and favoured a united India which was mm. multi-religious and mm. was not defined according to religion. And that, that included, you know, some of the sects which we now associate with the, the, the strongest sort of exponents of, uh, of Islamism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and within Shiism, another another example, uh, I mean, there has always been a strong secularist tendency within Shiism. And there is an argument that what we see in uh, Iran at the moment is a fundamental departure from that tradition rather than a continuation. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know about Iran. I mean, in, in India, it's certainly the case that um, whether by principle or because they are a minority, um, Muslims are far more likely to favour a, uh, a secular uh, constitution than Hindus. I and mean, I think that's something to remember as well. You know, the, the Baptists in the US weren't arguing for secularism in a context where 99% of Americans were Baptists. They were a religious minority. So I think maybe we could narrow down um, our, our talk about religious support for secularism by observing that it's particularly appealing to when religious support. When, 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 when you're in a minority. When you're in a minority, exactly. <laughs> no, that is true. Um, I mean, there's been another shift, which is that, um, and this is kind of what I want to move on to, Andrew. Um, certainly when secularists start their, uh, campaign, uh, secularists are arguing against the enforcement by law of religiously mandated perspectives and attitudes. We now live in a society which is secular, in which is deliberately open it's uh, it's pluralist in nature um 
we now live in a society where religious conservatives are are in the minority. And so what I kind of wanted to move on to is the extent to which secularism needs to both take advantage of, that is, call on the support of religious conservatives, and also can deliver to those uh, religious conservatives as well. Is that an aspect of... of, uh, Well, I think uh, that's very important. I mean, if secularism is going to work as a political settlement in this country well first of all I, I disagree with you that it, we are a secular settlement at the moment we're, we're not I mean we're a very non-religious society and lots of the aspects of our state are sort of de facto secular but we, we, we don't have a secular constitution we don't have a secular framework for our public services we don't have a secular national you know character um, at the state level um, but if if we if we if we're going to one day and if we're going to try and create it you know de facto now then you're right it has to appeal to um, religious minorities especially ones that are growing in political confidence wealth and social presence so i mean yes that's absolutely right we're faced with an interesting a bit more like india actually i think that we might mm. learn more from the secularism of india than from the past secularisms of europe as we look forward to our british future um for a british secularism but um we're now in the position where we've got everyone's a minority actually um, if you look at belief groups um, in the UK right now, there's no, it's a bit like um, different solutions for Brexit. That might date this podcast when I say right. it. It's a bit like different <laughs> solutions for Brexit. You know, everyone's got around 16 or 20%. Right. Everybody's um, in the minority of one in, on some <laughs> issue. Right. Well, they are. That's true. And in fact, that's an important part of secularism. That's an interesting um, debate as well, actually, which maybe we'll get onto, is that there's a question about how secularism accommodates different religious group attitudes. There's also a question about how secularism protects the individual, because, you know, in, in many ways in relation to beliefs, we're all in a minority of one, actually, in our sort of fundamental worldview too. But you're right, to come back to your main question, um, you're right, um, secularists have to speak to and convince religious minorities, including ones with very conservative, um, uh, illiberal uh, moral opinions, that secularism is the right settlement for them. So the question for us is how far liberals should make concessions to religious moral conservatives and how liberals set about drawing that difficult line. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, 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 it's a conversation I've had quite a lot since joining Quilliam because I have a number of colleagues who are religiously conservative in their, their religious beliefs and in their personal morality, um, but they're also very strong secularists. And w- one colleague said to me that, you know, a secular society was the best possible society for a religious conservative to live in, because if you're a religious conservative, um, unless you are fortunate enough to be absolutely in alignment in every aspect with the views of the ruling regime, which might well be a theocratic regime, you are in risk of being accused of apostasy. Yes, and, yeah. uh, and that puts you at personal risk in such a society so he's very keen to make the case to people who are yeah. religious and moral conservatives that secularism is the best framework it particularly in a pluralist society such as the one that we live in for uh, the maximum amount of personal and religious and moral freedom i think that's absolutely right i think your friend is right um a secular state is the best one for um, diverse types of religious uh, or moral conservatives to live in, um, uh, definitely, uh, and that 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 after all is rather what the early United States of America is like. I mean, you know, there's lots of progressive people there, but there's also lots of religious conservatives who, you know, want the, the state to keep its hands off there. 
um, sometimes quite regressive attitudes and from our point of view perhaps um, and behaviours um, and so there's no doubt that that's that's the right way for for those people to protect their own personal freedoms where it's tended to break down recently of course is that inconveniently for many um uh, religious conservatives um secularists often ally themselves with a human rights framework and the human rights framework this is the bit that's inconvenient for them um recognizes children as also human um, as adults and so the real clashes um, for between as it were secularists um, and uh, religious conservatives have come in the fact that through through things like our education system um, a secular approach um, sees children as also bearers of the rights of freedom of religion and belief um, entitlement to um, uh, education in var- of various sorts. And so that's where I think the difficult clashes have, have, have happened. Yeah, I mean, let, let's move on to that because, uh, I mean, this, I should say, Andrew, is a continuation of a conversation that you and I had on a train on the train, back from the right. way of, uh, <laughs> back from a conference where, where these were some of the issues being yes. uh, discussed. I mean, there is a, 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 particularly when it comes to children and particularly in relation to education, these have been extremely, uh, mm hot subjects over the last few months looking in particular uh, at the parkfield yeah, uh, right. uh, situation in birmingham yeah. where uh, students you, you can look at it from two angles either you can say um the school has uh, uh supplanted the role of the parents in providing moral uh, education to children on the subject of sexuality uh, or you can say that children have been deprived of information that they need in order to live mm. for autonomous uh healthy and happy lives um i i take it that well i i know where i would be obviously yeah and i think that's right i mean you know the secular state is in a tricky position actually when it comes to these sorts of issues because on the one hand the secular state is going to want to take seriously the claim of the parent to their freedom um, and it's recognised, for example, in instruments like the European Convention, but in other human rights instruments as well internationally, it's recognised that parents have a particular, peculiar, intimate relationship with their own mm. child that, you know, they are responsible for, he or she. Um, and uh, as a result, um, human rights law recognises um, that they have decision-making powers in relation to their children, including in the area of education. So, uh, And, of course, parents' choices in that domain of their lives are going to be influenced by their worldview, by their religion or their non-religious um, yeah. uh, beliefs. So the secular state is going to want to respect that, right, and give it room. But it's also going to consider itself it, to have a duty um, to the child uh, so as to ensure that they may grow up with uh, the benefit of freedom of thought, conscience, religion uh, or belief. And those two interests may rub up against each other i mean if there is for example um a parent wants to say well my child shouldn't learn about that or shouldn't be told that this is um, a possibility or shouldn't be informed of the existence of x y or z um or shouldn't be aware that you know this is legal or lawful or happens um then i think that it my view is that in situations like that um a secular state is justified in saying okay Um, We realise you think that as a parent, but in the same way that we respect your freedom to practice, um, we're going to make sure your child has the same opportunity as well. Um, And I think that's pretty basic to the the idea that the, the state should be a guarantor of that freedom. I, I agree, but you know, we there are. I mean, 
when when the Parkfield situation first started, I was reminded of a thing that had happened in Thurrock in Essex, not too far away from where I live, uh, where uh, parents had been withdrawing children from visits to local mosques. mosques yes, yes, yes. And um, they they did seem to be quite sort of similar uh, uh, issues. You Very know, where similar. You had parents with extremely strong views yeah. about, you know, children not being exposed to what they regarded as pernicious uh, influences. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a difficult line, really, for uh, for the state to. Draw. I mean, I don't find that difficult at all. Uh, children should visit mosques and learn about Muslims. But the reason I say it's a difficult uh, line to draw is that that you you, you know there is a uh, there's an outcome here which we want to avoid, which is that um, parents say, well, right, right, okay, well, we can only be sure of of our children receiving um, education which is is in line with the things that we care mm. about mm. if we effectively withdraw children from the broader education system we homeschool them we send them to schools which are effectively religious foundations where there is a a much sort of broader and deeper segregation um, between children at that level yeah these are problems um i think that these part of the root of these problems and the potential i think the solution i think a secularist is always going to say well the solution to those problems is more secularism right um and i think i would agree with that position actually in relation to those schools this is an area where perhaps we ought to go back to something that we said you said earlier in our questions and reconsider the nature to which the uk is or england at least Mm. is a secular state at all i mean our schools aren't secular institutions um by law um, the school curriculum for religious education gives a priority to Christianity, both in terms of space on the curriculum and, um, and in other ways. There's daily Christian worship in our schools and there are opt-outs for sex and relationships education and for uh, religious education that are designed for the benefit of Christians, certain mm-hmm. denominations of, of, of Christianity in, in, in both cases. So I don't think that we should see, for example, um, uh, Muslim parents as being you know, uh, intention necessarily with uh, the secular state because I don't think that the secular state yet exists in terms of what in, in, inside our education system. I think that the, the the frame through which to understand what's going on at the moment is um, uh, Muslim parents trying to secure for themselves the same rights that they perceive uh, Christianity as having in this country. And that's also the, been the debate uh, when it comes to whether or not there should be Muslim faith schools, of course, which there are now. Um, it's a sort of Unlike in France, if uh, if religions are going to be treated equally in the UK, there's going to be a general levelling up rather than of what's given to each religion and what's granted to each religious parent rather than a uh, a levelling down. And I think that's a problem of, of our constitution not being secular rather than necessarily a clash between religious conservatives on the one hand and secularism on the other. But a parent might say, yeah, I send my child to school for education. I don't expect my children to receive acculturation. Right. Uh, so I think that there's, there's obviously a more complicated debate, which is about what education is um, and what it's for. Um, and this is this is a more difficult situation because the sort of education that I would favour being taught in schools, and perhaps you may th- feel the same, um, is what I'd refer to, what I'd probably describe as being a liberal education. So the idea that education is the process by which um, the child becomes more capable of freedom of thought, um, more capable of freedom of choice, more informed, more able to make their own choices, um, more aware of uh, the great human heritage in various ways, whether art or literature, as much as possible of that, um, the process by which a child becomes capable 
um, always encouraged to be curious, to be intellectually critical, to think critically, um, to examine both their own beliefs and the beliefs of others through a critical lens. You know, that's what I think of as education. Now, there are other ways of defining the word education which aren't the same as that. And so you might legitimately say, well, that's a, the word education is doing a lot of work in your claim that the state has to guarantee children an education. Um, are you sure there isn't a liberal worldview, an unshared liberal worldview hiding behind? Is there, in fact, a humanism hiding behind the school curriculum, you know, today, or at least a bit of Christianity plus humanism, liberal Christianity mm. plus humanism, you know, lurking in the in the assumptions of the school uh, curriculum? Um, and I think that's a fair challenge. I think that that um, could be discussed um, further. Um, I think that um, even after whatever balancing should take place between, on the one hand, um, uh, the rights of the child to that sort of learning um, and the rights of the parents to their own uh, freedom over their own children or control over their own children, I still think that after that balancing, the child's right to that balanced uh, liberal curriculum is is the right one. It is also the one that is protected in international human rights law. I mean, in the Convention on the Right, I, I'm not trying to refer to human rights as if they're some sort of sacred text, but they are um, rule of thumb, uh, you know, highest common factor type expressions of human values in lots of ways. You know, people from all different religions were involved in their concoction. Um, yes. States all over the world have adopted them, not every state in the world, as we know, but yep. many states have. So I think that we can fairly assume that um, there is at least broad consensus around um, uh, the human rights instruments and the Convention on the Rights of the Child says very clearly, and I think this is an aspiration that most people would have for their children, that the child is entitled to receive and impart information of all kinds and to you know, be exposed to as much learning as possible and diverse learning so as to make their own mind up. But should the state have a monopoly on defining how that should be done? I mean, I take it you wouldn't be in favour of uh, school vouchers, foundation school type approaches where... I'm actually pretty agnostic on that question, in fact. If an education system delivers certain ends, then I'm not precious about how uh, the means to those ends. Um, But I'd I'd want any school where parents could spend their voucher um, to be within a framework that made sure that they were delivering that that end. And I don't think that end is just about, by the way, the rights of the child. Um, So um, there's the right of the child... Uh, as we've discussed. But there are also the interests of the broader community, the interests of the state. I mean, the children will be citizens, you know, and they will either grow up to be informed uh, participators in the democratic process. I mean, this is a democracy. You know, every single child that comes out of that school is going to have the right to vote and they're going to hold your fate in their hands and mine, um, just as we'll hold theirs when we vote or participate in our own uh, politics. So I think that the state does have interest as well to make sure that they're producing citizens who are capable of deliberating um, and informed uh, of the broad nature of society. I mean, I don't want um, the citizen that comes out of this school in Thurrock um, to be... Uh, so uninformed um, of uh, the life of his Muslim neighbours that he's, you know, willing to vote for a party that would eradicate Muslims from this country unthinkingly, just as I don't want a child coming out of uh, Parkfield in in Birmingham to be so uninformed of um, the life uh, and interests of a gay person to vote for a party that would remove, you know, um, same-sex rights in this country either. And there's a more basic concern, I think, that a lot of people have, and it's not an unjustified concern uh, at all, which is that um, yeah, a child who grows up without any exposure or understanding of what 
Islam is about and what Muslim lives are like or what uh, it is like to be a, a gay person um, is potentially more likely to attack them in the street. Oh, absolutely. It's a short route alienation. Um, and just as regular contact with diverse people from an early age is a, is, a, is, a, is a good route towards understanding people better and having a more harmonious society. I mean, that's just basic sociology will tell you that, I think. Can we talk, just in conclusion of this section, um, about an issue that I've been campaigning on and I know that uh, Humanists UK have been active on it as well. It's the position of Jewish children within some Haredi uh, groups, some Haredi societies. Yes. Um, I, the, the, the situation, uh, in its very, very brief overview, mm. is that um, boys will typically be educated in non-religious subjects up to the age of 13, and thereafter will go to yeshivas where they'll receive no education of that sort. Those yeshivot are not subject to inspection um and they are theoretically being homeschooled but in practice are not yeah exactly um and then girls uh have a slightly better uh, position they will be educated up to the age of 16 they will very often sit a small number of gcses in which they'll do extremely well and then that is it um it's not the same for every Haredi group, but yeah. for some Hasidic groups, uh, you, you, it is simply unthought of that you might take A-levels and unheard of that you would go to university. And indeed, to go to university would be to effectively and practically excommunicate yourself Give up. from yeah, the, uh, exactly. the, the society exactly. as a whole. What are humanists doing to support people in that position? Well, I mean, this is, if you want to sort of boil down paradigm example of what we've just been talking about, this is it, isn't it? I mean, you writ large the conflict between the rights of the child um, in our society um, and uh, the interests of parents and religious institutions and communities, um, institutions with a small eye, you know, the sort of social institutions that prevail in the sort of community that you're talking about. Yeah, we've been extremely active on this. It's, I think it's been shocking the way that um, wider society has been willing actually to turn a blind eye to condemn those children to um, a life where when you think about what choices and what freedom we take for granted for our own children in, in, in wider society uh, today, just to condemn to the scrap heap, really, children uh, in those positions um, has been a quite shocking uh, example of a blind eye. And, and what um, do you think that is? Uh, I think it's, well, it's partly because they're Jewish and I think a mixture of both not wanting to um, inflame anti-Semitic opinion and at the same time probably not caring as much about Jewish children as about other children. Um, so a, a, a toxic yeah, <laughs> two I'm, sides of a coin I mean, um, there. We think of this in terms of sort of, you know, outward-facing and inward-facing mm. uh, extremism. I mean, the outward-facing extremism is something that people get very upset about because it manifests itself in, uh, you know, at, at its most extreme, uh, terrorist bombings in public. Inward-facing extremism only hurts members of the community and they can often be ignored because yeah. by definition they're not part of wider society so people romanticize their position yes. and they're easier to ignore yes i think that's very i think that's very true um and um that's a very useful perspective actually to bring to bear on it and i think you're right i think the victims of that sort of inward looking uh tendency um are overlooked in fact worse than that as you say romanticized i mean famously of course the uh, former columnist Giles Fraser, um, who wrote um, 
about how wonderful it was for the Hasidic children had these uh, this beautiful life, you know, it was preserved from the from the outside world, um, and and it was just straight down, you know. It was a quite remarkable article. I, I, I took comfort in the fact it that, was like, a Simon, like Sir Simon Jenkins, Giles Fraser is a person who you can consistently uh, <laughs> be sure of being wrong about. He's something. a barometer <laughs> for you. Right. He's a compass. He, He's a moral compass. Right. If, if he says something, the, the other way. opposite must be true. <laughs> well, you right. say that, but he and I were both on the same mm. side of a debate at the Cambridge Union in which we beat Stephen Fry and the Bishop of Leicester oh, because he yeah. and I were both on the side of disestablishment of the Church of England, of course, for quite different reasons. Um, but uh, yeah, so you're right. There's a, there's a, there is a romanticising of, 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 of this position, which is, you know, almost Victorian, actually, sort of sentimentalising of, of Victorian, um, almost like poverty porn, you know, sort of look at this uh, picturesque um, scene. Well, if you're, if you're lucky enough to have met, as you have and as I have, um, any of the young men and women who've escaped this, and they see it as an escape, you know, escaped this community, and seen how, you know, with what vigour and enthusiasm they've embraced the opportunities um, quite often... Um, you see pretty clearly that uh, to romanticise that situation is to deprive those um, young people of, you know, a life that almost any other human being in the history of our species has been incapable uh, of living and has been unavailable to them. You think of all the opportunities of life today, um, of knowledge, of experience, uh, of joy, and and they they haven't had any of it. And you meet people now who uh, have escaped that community and have embraced that life And it's tragic that there should be others who want to keep them in their place. Andrew Copperson, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Next in Q podcast, brought to you by Quilliam International, the civil society movement challenging extremism. Please support our work by becoming a member of Quilliam Circle at quilliaminternational.com forward slash circle. Tune in next time to see what's next in queue.